This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 13th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk this week about a couple of key developments that went on in the area of federal taxes. As has been true recently, we haven't had really big developments in federal taxes. Things have been rather quiet, but we did have a couple of things this week I thought we might want to talk about. One of them that got regular news coverage was that the IRS has raised the mileage rate effective July 1st of this year. So we'll talk about the four cents per mile increase in the mileage rate. That's what got press this week from the IRS. It had been requested earlier in a letter signed by 18 members of Congress. Uh, action has now been taken by the IRS. It is an action they took in 2011. Those of you who've been in practice for a while probably remember that. We had the split year then with two different mileage rates. We're going to do it again this year. And then also, we're going to talk about taxpayers who didn't really follow the rules when they changed from the cash basis to the accrual method of accounting, overall method, for the accounting method of accounting. I should say methods. We're talking about tax. Uh, basis is what you talk about when you talk about general accounting concepts. We're going to talk about, though, the cash method of accounting and accrual method. They didn't file their 3115. And you might think, well, no harm, no foul. They got away with it for a number of years. We'll talk about why in this case, uh, there was actually a request for a private letter ruling to try to get the IRS to allow them to make the election years after they should have. Discuss a little bit about why they didn't get the ruling. And then also discuss you know, what some of the consequences may be, as well as why was anybody asking for this ruling? Because frankly, it's not something, which I'm sure people will tell me, that they've been in practice for years. The IRS has never on exam gone back and checked 3115s to see if they were filed. Uh, you know, they look three years on three years prior returns. And if the three years, you know, haven't had a problem, they're not going to say much about, you know, going back 10, 15, 20 years to try to figure out if a 3115 was filed or even if there ever was a different method of accounting used. So we'll discuss a little bit about well, how in the world did this issue even come up? Why would this issue have arisen? And why did it go so badly for the taxpayer? But let's start with the news that hit the general press this week. And that was IRS announcement 2022-13. Back in May, and essentially, actually the date was May 13th, 18 members of Congress signed on to a letter that requested that the IRS go and raise the auto mileage rate this year because of the significant increase in gasoline costs since the beginning of 2022. I'm sure most of you have noticed that it's gotten quite a bit more expensive to fill your tank recently, right? It's become more and more expensive depending upon which part of the country you're in. You know, the cost per gallon can be running from, if you're in an oil country, I guess somewhere around $5 a gallon up to seven, eight, nine, some places, $10 a gallon for a gallon of gasoline. And that's significantly higher than what we had just a few months ago. So we have this letter and this letter signed by these members of Congress. Now they were all Democratic members of Congress, not surprisingly, because they're the ones going to be looking for, you know, in essence, the agency is going to pay more attention to them since the administration is a Democratic administration. So it's one of these things, if you get a letter signed by a bunch of Republicans, then there's a idea that this may be more of a, shall we say, running for re-election issue. So that's the time of year it is. Uh, back when we had a Republican administration, all these letters and complaints and demands from the Democrats were similarly not really things you had to pay much attention to. But this one, Congress, you know, they probably felt they needed to do something about this. Uh, be a little more push if they got some signatures from the Republicans. But nevertheless, it seems like, you know, there, there's reason to answer to these 18 Democratic members of Congress about why the rates were, you know, why we didn't move this. And as I said, they point out in the letter that this had been done in 2011 due to a significant increase in the, in the price of gasoline then. Well, it wasn't quite as significant as it is today. 
but it was significant for the time. And they did it. The IRS now, in announcement 2022-13, has provided that they will increase two mileage rates by four cents per gallon, beginning, or four cents per mile, I should say, beginning July 1st of 2022. So obviously there's one issue here. You are going to have to get these mileage numbers divided during the year, you know, mileage before June 30, 2022, and mileage after, you know, July 1st and after. Now, some people are saying, well, that's not going to work. Clients don't have it divided that way. I will remind people that in theory, under 274, if the taxpayer doesn't have contemporaneous documentation of their auto expenses, in theory, there's no deduction. So if the client's been doing it right, and by the way, when I say right, I'm not just being picky here. I regularly read tax court decisions, and I regularly see tax court decisions where the question of a taxpayer's ability to deduct auto mileage comes up. Now, it doesn't come up as much these days since employee business expenses are no longer deductible. Remember, TCJ got rid of that, so the number of cases are down somewhat where this matter keeps coming up. But consistently in every case, if the taxpayer did not have records of mileage that, or at least some way to reconstruct them that went back to the time when the mileage was driven, uh, the deduction would be zero. So while I've heard the complaint, I also have to say, let's be honest, in an exam, if they don't have the details, then they're probably going to lose the whole deduction anyway if the agent is at all competent. So you're rooting for an incompetent agent as I guess the way we look at this if you're going to be examined. But the rate's going to go up to 62.5 cents per mile for business mileage. That's up from 58.5 cents currently. So July 1st, we kick up to that level. Also on July 1st, medical and moving expenses will go up to 22 cents per mile from 18 cents. Now you might say, wait, wait, moving expenses aren't deductible anymore. They are still deductible for certain members of the military. So if you're in that category, yes, you can get the mileage that way. Same way that there are still some limited cases where employees can claim business expenses above the line. They're actually, the ones that complain, can claim above the line haven't changed in years. But in those limited cases, yes, the new rate would still apply to an employee. Again, those are rare. Probably not going to see much of that. But we will see the medical expenses and we will see the business mileage. The IRS has put that in. It is effective July 1st, so don't start using that rate today. You need to get ready. Why they do it as a date into the future. First thing is I do think they realize it's easier for people to do it by month than to try to figure it out based on a day, random day in the middle of a month that we changed it. But secondly, uh, payroll departments, businesses, etc., that reimburse employee for mileage, uh, presumably they need some time to incorporate this into their systems. Now, if you can't get it done by July 1st for your employee reimbursement, it's not really that big a negative. Well, it is for the employee, I guess, but not, not, not for the company. Because again, the rule is you can reimburse up to the mileage rate. Nothing says you have to reimburse 100% of the mileage rate. But presumably, most companies will want to be reimbursing at that rate because most of your employees have read about these new rates. So obviously, the rates come in. Now, there is one other category of mileage, which is for charitable contributions. But as is noted by the IRS in the actual document that they release, the charitable contribution is fixed by the statute, Internal Revenue Code Section 170I, has that at 14 cents per mile. That one, if Congress wants to change that, Congress has to pass a law to change it. That has not been changed for a long time. So I wouldn't expect to see any movement on that anytime soon by Congress. Maybe somebody will figure it out. Maybe the fact that they now have this notice saying that and it'll be published that the law fixes that one instead of setting it based on IRS computations of, you know, related to cost of driving. Uh, and the IRS does point out in their news release that came out with this announcement that, you know, we, we do, you know, in essence, it's not just 
gas that goes into these computations. We look at insurance, repair costs, etc. So it's not as simplistic as just saying, wait, gas has gone up by X percent, you know, X times since the beginning of the year. So the rate should be, let's say, two times or three times what it was prior. Now, that's not how it works because that's not all the costs. So that's the reason why the increase is only the four cents per gallon or four cents per mile that we have. But it is something that's useful. You should get this notice out to clients that are impacted if you're in public accounting. If you're in private accounting, then you probably want to get this incorporated into your business systems so that you can start doing it correctly as of the 1st of July. Next up, and th as I said, this week, not a lot's going on, but I wanted to discuss with you Private Letter Ruling 2022-23011. This came out on June the 10th, and this is a private letter ruling looking for relief under Regulation 301-9100-3 for a taxpayer who failed to attach to a tax return or send to the IRS, basically means we didn't fill it out, Form 3115 for approval of a change of accounting method, automatic approval in this case, when the taxpayer went from the cash basis of accounting to the overall accrual, a cash method of accounting, I'll say that correctly, to the overall accrual method of accounting for tax purposes. As I said, basis is the accounting term, uh, method is the term for tax. So let's talk first about what exactly are the accounting method rules. Well, the basic accounting method rules are found under section 446. And 446, when accounting method is, let's talk about that first. An accounting method is something that affects the timing, but not the amount of a deduction or income item. So for instance, let's talk about cash method versus accrual method. Under the cash method, I recognize revenue when I receive the cash payment for whatever it is I sold, be it normally a service, because cash method works there, is allowed for many, many more service companies that are much larger. But it could be product these days, especially with the small business accounting rules. That means that when I get paid, that's it. There's no bad debt expense because we don't pick up, you know, we're not picking up a receivable when it's billed out. We're only, we're waiting for the cash to come in and by definition, in a bad debt situation, the cash never comes in. So that's why it's a bad debt. On the accrual basis, we record that revenue as soon as we essentially bill it out. We have the right to bill and we bill it, we have the right to bill it out. So as soon as we have the right to bill it out, that's when we pick it up on the accrual basis. Over time, and again, as I mentioned, with accrual basis, we also have bad debt deductions which means that if it turns out that some of those receivables are bad, which almost certainly some will be, then we will go ahead and back those off as a deduction later. But over time, you're going to get exactly the same revenue from the start of the business until the business terminates. The lifetime revenue of the business from start to you know when it shuts down is going to be exactly the same reported on the tax returns uh, or I should say that plus reduced by the bad debts. A few other little adjustments there. So on the accrual basis, it's a little more complicated because there's returns, allowances, and other things that will probably adjust it. But roughly, we're going to have the same revenue, right? At some point, we're going to be the same. Ultimately, the same overall income would be reported on the cash basis or the accrual basis. Similarly, if you depreciate an asset over five years, or over 20 years, you're still going to deduct the same amount over the five years and the 20 years, right? Ultimately, the cost of the item will be recovered, just how long it takes. So that's the concept of a method of accounting. Under 446E, if you want to change your method of accounting, you can't just willy-nilly change them at will. You have to request the IRS's permission to change the method. Generally, you set your method when you first start doing something 
And normally you do it for two years and that establishes your method. If you do it for two years, you do something consistently for two years, that generally establishes your method. It's kind of a rough and ready rule if you have a choice of methods. If you only do it for the one year and then you know do something different, you can argue that was a mistake or an error. But when you do it multiple years in a row, the consistency is what proves your method. So you have a method. Again, you must have the IRS's permission if you want to change that method. Something that's counterintuitive to many is you need that permission even if you're making a change from, an from a not permitted method of accounting to a permitted or even required method of accounting. So for instance, let's say that your revenues are over $40 million a year and you have, you know, and you're basically in the business of retail sales in a department store type setup. That entity is not allowed to use the cash basis of accounting. Under the law, under 448, uh, you know, basically at that size, certainly a corporation, and generally under the rules for inventory and accounting methods in general, a uh, you know something where material where merchandise is a material income producing factor i know everybody says it is inventory but if you actually want to make make it make sense think of merchandise because we don't worry about inventories being around at the end of the year we worry about whether merchandise are a major part things that would be inventoried if they were around at year end that's what we consider when we talk about inventory as a material income producing item well if you're not allowed to be on the accrual basis but you on the cash basis, but you've been operating on the cash basis from the first year you started up until now, you still need the IRS permission to change. Maybe you've been under the $26, 27000000 million limitation under the TCGA, and you've been allowed to be on the cash basis, but now you've gone over on average, and so you're going to be no longer allowed to use the cash basis going forward. Even though you're required to switch, you still have to ask for the IRS permission. If you don't ask for that permission, you have to continue using the old method, even if it is improper. And that's something that's very difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. You know, we're not allowed to use it. Well, what do you do? Now, the permission rules fall into two categories. For most of the changes you're going to want to make, and for the one in question here today, the IRS allows you to automatically get permission. If what you're wanting to do is on the automatic change list, what you can do is you start to file 3115 and fill out the appropriate portions. But you don't send it to the IRS and wait for them to rule on whether you're going to be allowed to make this change. Rather, what you do is you go ahead and you simply attach it to your tax return. So file it as part of the return or electronically attach it these days. And then you mail a separate copy, signed separate copy, to an IRS office that has changed over the years but now is again back in an address at the Ogden Service Center. So you got to go check the 3115 instructions but they tell you when to, where to send this. The automatic change list is updated every so often by the IRS. What tends to happen is they go ahead and they publish a big update. After that, if something happens and they need to let out a new automatic change method, most often because Congress has passed a new law, they need to create some sort of temporary option to let you change methods if Congress now requires or allows a new method to be used. They'll, fill, they'll have some fill-in revenue procedures in the interim. And then every year, two years, they go back and they kind of roll up the revenue procedures into the new list. So essentially, you watch out for that. That's what you do. You file that way. If you do want to change that's not in the automatic list, uh, you have to get that permission ahead of time. Generally, you need to ask for that permission early in the year you want to make the change in order to make sure you're going to have the ruling back by the time it, you're required to file the tax return in question. Because you can't use the new method until the IRS approves it, even if that new method is one that the IRS on exam would force you to use. 
Now, changing methods also generally requires that we do something about the fact that we would have computed a different amount of income using the new method versus the old method. In most cases, for most methods, what we do is we use what's called a 481A adjustment. And that means we effectively go back and look at the income reported to date under the method that the taxpayer has used, been using. And then we look at income that would have been reported to date under the proposed method. And if the new method, right, let's say we would have reported more income under the new method than the old, well, that difference is taken into income over four years, beginning with the year of change. Now, if it is less than $50,000, it can all be taken into account in the year of the change, just for administrative simplicity. If the number is negative under the new method, we would have recognized less income than we would have recognized than we recognized under the old method. The negative adjustment is all taken into account in the year of change. As I said, we have to have the IRS permission. Now let's talk about the taxpayer situation. In this case, apparently many years ago, the IRS doesn't really tell us how long ago in this ruling, but they do indicate that, they, that this request for letter ruling relief came well after the year of change. So we're going to assume, I think, it's probably safe to assume that we're talking about multiple years and probably more, at least more than three years back. So the statute would be closed on the IRS being able to assess tax for the year of the change. What the taxpayer had been doing, they had been reporting on the cash basis of accounting. They apparently just swapped to accrual one year and they didn't ask for IRS permission to do so. And they also never uh, took into income a 41A adjustment. They just simply swapped to the other method. Now, why might a taxpayer do that? It is possible they got a new tax preparer, a new tax professional who might have known that their type of business was not allowed to be on the accrual basis or on the cash basis. Uh, we know a little bit about what this company did. Uh, we don't have a lot about it. We're just talking about, in this case, this company. Um, let me get my stuff correct. That what this company did, the taxpayer's facts, is a full-service production company for activity. It's, you know, you can read it out a few possibilities. I mean, it could be a production company for drilling oil. It could be a production company for television. We don't know. It's a production. There's many things that could be production. So in any event, let's say that somebody came in and knew it should have been reporting on the accrual basis, but didn't really have any understanding of the accounting method rules. They might view those cash basis prior returns as just erroneous, right? Well, yes, but because it's a method, they can be erroneous, but we still have a problem. Now, if you do an automatic method change when you've noticed you've stepped into this erroneous problem, you don't have to go back and amend those prior returns. All you do is file the accounting method change with the year you're making the change, take your 41A adjustments into, into income over the four years, and you're done. And having filed the method change that actually gives you audit protection on the issue of being forced to go to the other method on earlier years. In essence, the IRS gives you a carrot for coming in from the cold voluntarily. Well, in this case, they came in from the cold, uh, but they just didn't tell the IRS about it. It's one of those kind of quiet shall we say, I, I know we talk about people who had offshore income, offshore bank accounts, you know, the kind of quiet disclosure, just start doing it right now and hope they never find the other stuff. Um, you know, that's not a necessarily smart move there. It's certainly not here a smart move, but they did it. Now, I know at this point, some of you are going to tell me, well, why not do it that way? The IRS never worries about this issue. And, you know, I've never seen the IRS on exam go after this issue. If you're at least three years out, they'll never catch it. And I'm not going to argue that point with you. I also cannot point you to a single exam I've been involved in where the agent has even tried to worry about whether or not there'd been accounting method change in prior years 
if there's nothing showing in the three years they're looking at. If they don't see any evidence there, they won't say anything. And who knows at this point? I, I think some of them wouldn't have said anything even if they saw something there. It just wouldn't have been something they'd have realized. But here's the catch. In this case, we have the taxpayer asking the IRS to issue a private letter ruling that would allow them now to clean this up by filing a late Form 3115 and by, you know, essentially the late 3115 and the late copy to the IRS Service Center. So there's, and we'll talk about the possible reasons here later, but there is something driving the company to apply for this ruling. So let's talk about this fact situation. You already know most of it, right? They made a switch from cash to accrual. Uh, we do not know if that would have led to a net positive or negative adjustment. We do know they never picked up the 41A adjustment. And it may very well be something lost to time. You know, I, the records may not really exist anymore. That would allow them to figure out what the original adjustment was. The return in question may be gone. Uh, but we do know that they started out on the cash basis. And we do know that they eventually switched to accrual. So they're asking for relief. Now they need to ask for relief because the revenue procedures for automatic changes, which would cover this, uh, require you to submit the 3115 and to submit the copy to the, uh, to the service center on or before the due date, including extensions actually received for the tax return where you're the, for the year of change. And they're well after that date. So they're, they're looking under this ruling saying, well, look, okay, we, we didn't mean wrong. We're just going to ask for this relief. Now the IRS notes, because the IRS sets dates here, and that's somewhat important. If we're talking about an election where the dates are set by IRS regulation or ruling, the IRS has the authority to grant relief. If the date for something is set by statute, the IRS will say, it's always been their position, that they can't override Congress. So if Congress says you have to do it by a certain date, either Congress has got to provide for the right for the IRS to waive that date under certain conditions in statute, or the agency says we just can't do it. So in this case, this is something though that clearly was the agency. Now, there are a couple of ways to get late elections automatically approved in section, Regulation 301.9100-2. But the first one of those is if you filed your return on time, or at least you've already filed your return, and there's an election that should have been on the original return, you can always get late election relief if you file it no later than the extended due date of the return basically, or six months after the original due date, as long as the original election was due on by the due date, including extensions of the return. So it wouldn't help you with a 475F election, which is actually due by essentially April 15th of the year you're going to make the 475F election. That's the mark-to-market rule for traders, mainly traders. It also goes in some other cases. Uh, but, you know, that because that's not tied to that date. The other way you can get a late election relief, there's a special called 12-month rule in the same regulation, 301.9100-2. But that only applies to the specified list of elections in the, in, in the actual regulation. Now, in this case, obviously, the change is not being requested before the extended due date of the return. So that option's out for automatic relief. And change of accounting methods are not covered by the 12-month rules. And to be totally honest, we're probably more than 12 months out. By the way, the IRS tells us in their ruling turning this down that you know it was far after the original date should have been done. So we're probably looking at something many years after. So now we're looking at the general regulation 301 .9100-3, where the IRS can grant relief for a late election as long as they set the date. But in order to get that relief, if you're outside the automatic rules, a couple of things have to be established. 
And basically what the reg says to start is that the taxpayer, you know, in this case, uh, has to show that the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith and failed to make the election timely and that the granting of the extension to file the election will not prejudice the interest of the government. Now, you might think, well, that, that sounds like I could persuade them on all kinds of things, but the answer is not quite as simple. It's not quite as bad as it might seem because you're going to find that the interest of the government prejudice argument isn't as broad as you might worry, but it is still an issue. But the first thing you got to show is that the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith. Now, there are some ways that the IRS is, you know, if in essence you're deemed to have acted reasonably and in good faith, if you request relief before the failure to make a regulatory election is discovered by the IRS, you fail to make the election because of intervening events beyond the taxpayer's control, you fail to make the election after exercising due diligence because you were unaware of the necessity of the election. And by the way, that's going to be judged by the taxpayer's level of knowledge. A CPA, you know, is going to, as, let's say a CPA firm who's a, who's a tax firm is going to have a lot higher expected level of knowledge about these things than, let's say, somebody with a, you know, with that never graduated high school, who's operating some sort of, you know, restaurant, who, you know, may not have any sophisticated business knowledge whatsoever, they're going to be allowed a lot more leeway in that regard. Also, if you reasonably relied on the written advice of the IRS, or you relied on a qualified tax professional, including a tax professional employed by the taxpayer, and the taxpayer professional failed to make or advise taxpayer to make the election. Now, in this case, the interesting aside is the only one of these it could cover, they did apparently come to the IRS before the IRS discovered no election has been made. But they didn't really have any of the others. And that turns out to be a bit of a problem. Um, the issue in this case is because there is a set of cases where the taxpayer is deemed not to have acted reasonably. And that's if they seek to alter a return position which an accuracy-related penalty has been or could be imposed under 6062 at the time the taxpayer requests relief and the new position requires or permits a regulatory election for which relief is requested. And that could be an exposure here if they simply were not allowed to use the accrual basis. Right? Cash basis would have been subject to penalty. Uh, and if the year is closed, then yeah, they have no real way to do it. If they were informed and all materially expected required election and consequences and chose not to file the election, that's also a bad fact. They waited to, for until too late. Or use hindsight in requesting relief. And if the specific facts have changed since the date of the election, it's presumed, essentially, that the decision to seek relief, you know, involved hindsight. You've got to have strong proof to show why it didn't. Now, to be honest, the best way to clear this hurdle is to get the taxpayer's advisor in the year in question when the election was not made to either admit they screwed up and didn't make the election or admit that they never, you know, the taxpayer depended on them for advice in this area and they failed to tell the taxpayer about the election. In this case, we have no such facts being submitted. So that could be a problem in this case. Because that's usually the way it's most successful. Because seeking the advice of a tax professional is also pretty much deemed to be evidence the taxpayer reasonably attempted to figure out how to do things and just got bum advice. Now, the other catch is at the interest of the government. Generally, that's going to be a problem because the interest of the government are ordinary prejudice of a taxable year in which the regulatory election should have been made or any taxable year that would have been affected by the election had it been timely made are closed due to the period of limitations before the request for relief was granted. That's likely a problem here. And also, it's also deemed prejudiced except for unusual and compelling circumstances if the accounting method regulatory election for which the extension of time requested is subject to 
you know, Regulation 1.446-13I, and it requires a 41 election or would require one. That is very much the problem here. It required one, and probably even worse for the taxpayer, they've never made it. They never made. They never actually did the 41A spread. They kind of just skipped over that and just suddenly reporting accrual after previously reporting cash basis and kind of skipped the issue. And they note that unusual and compelling circumstances are determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Ultimately, in this case, um, they felt that there was no such compelling case being made here, right? What they concluded was the taxpayer failed to demonstrate that the government's interests are not prejudiced. So while they did come in from the cold before they were caught, so under that side we can say that they'll meet the initial, they'll meet the threshold to be deemed to have acted reasonably. They came in before the IRS caught them, so they were voluntarily coming in. Um, the problem was it was a change of accounting method, and those you don't tend to get relief from late. Uh, you're just not supposed to change the method. Now, you might ask, well, what's the consequence at this point? I mean, what's the IRS going to do? Well, what the IRS can do, and I've been thinking about this, and again, the letter doesn't explain what's going to happen, but it seems highly likely that the IRS would go back to the first year that's still open for assessment of tax. And since they should have been reporting cash basis, they're going to go ahead and force them to report in the first open year as income the accounts receivable that were on the books in the last year they filed on the accrual basis. Despite the fact that those were taxed on the prior year return, they're going to want to see them taxed again because, the, you know, in essence, you just include them in the wrong year. Tough luck. Now, you might say, but, but won't that be offset by their payables? And you might think it would, except there is a problem in the law. And that is, generally, either the taxpayer or the IRS can get relief from the statute and be able to force somebody to allow a deduction or to deny a deduction, right, or pick up income. Various things could happen. If the other party relied on the representation of the first to their detriment, and now the other party seeks to take an inconsistent position. While that can apply to the IRS in exam context, uh, generally the problem is the person most often making positions and representations that are being relied upon by the other party is the taxpayer to the IRS. You told the IRS these expenses were deducted in, let's say, because we're sitting here right now, here in 2022, so we are now closing out the 2019 years, or they have closed, or say 2018 years or have closed. So let's say that 18's closed. You know, you asserted these items were deductible in 2018, and they weren't. Well, the IRS can't disallow them anymore because they were they had to be taken on the cash basis, and they hadn't been paid. So in that case, to take away the IRS's disadvantage you won't be allowed to claim them on the 19 return when you now are filing on the cash basis. However, since the IRS did not tell you it was, you know, pick those up as income in 18, they will be able to force you to pick up the receivables as income in 19, even though you already paid tax on them in 18. And yes, there have actually been cases of this sort on things like claim of right issues where people have been forced to pay tax on the same money twice. So, it's been a bit of a quirky problem. So we'll get there. And what they would do is, of course, force you to go cash basis then. And if you're allowed to be accrual ba cash basis now, they could leave you on the accrual basis. In fact, they couldn't really force you to go, uh, leave you on the, if you're If you're not required to be accrual basis now, they could leave you on the cash basis and probably would have to. But if you're required to be on the accrual basis, then in the, you know, Basically, they could force you to catch up the difference. So in the end, the impact would probably be that you would pick up that 41A adjustment, which would be the receivables in the year of the conversion, which is the oldest year open, and you double pay tax on receivables. 
Now, what's more interesting is the IRS turned down the ruling, and that's it almost is no question. So the question becomes, why was this ruling requested? As I mentioned, I don't recall ever seeing the IRS raise this question on exam. I don't require ever seeing, you know, it really ever being an issue where, you know, agents just don't go here. So why was this being requested? And it's even more interesting because when the taxpayer was informed that the ruling that that you know the ruling request would not, they would not be granted the request it would be essentially a negative a turn down denied the taxpayer nevertheless requested that the actual denial letter be issued now i realize now you're going to pay the fee anyway because you made the request but why would the taxpayer want the, the formal denial letter i mean what's the point it raises a couple of issues first thing is you could try to challenge the IRS ruling here, right? You need their permission to change. They didn't give you the permission. You could, I suppose, be using this to prove they won't give permission and then to go back and ask the courts to rule that the IRS acted arbitrarily or capriciously in denying your relief. The problem is you're not very likely to win that case. I can't recall ever seeing that argued and the taxpayer winning in a case I've seen in all the years I've been looking at cases. So it doesn't seem likely. There's a lot of discretion here. You clearly fouled up. You're asking for the IRS to do something that basically the law doesn't require them to do. It really is, you know, unless you caught the IRS saying, I'm not going to do it because, you know, you know, I, I will never do it for somebody that lives in Arizona because I hate Arizona. That, that would be arbitrary. So maybe a case like that, but other than that, you're probably not going to get that ruling, you know, that ruling. So now it comes up to a better question. And also, why are we asking for it? There was no, nothing here suggests there was an exam going on. Uh, it clearly, you know, they, they would have said, yeah, the IRS caught the problem first. There was an exam going on. You know, you can't really come in then from the cold. Um, and anyway, it would have probably been a TAM at that point, a technical advice memorandum in the exam about whether it was okay. So, you know, why was this issued? Why, why were we asking for it? Well, there are a couple of possible reasons. One of which, which is, I guess, is less likely but possible, is that a new tax professional may have been brought in by the firm brought in by the organization who discovered the problem. You know, that, oh man, years ago they'd been cash basis to start, they switched to accrual, they never got permission, and they never, you know, they never actually filed the form. Now, I will say a tax professional who discovers that has a problem uh, because you may want to back out of that because you have no good way forward and the tax and the taxpayer is probably going to fire you if you insist they get it corrected which is this is one method you could try but obviously it doesn't work after which then what you'd have to go back and do the cash we're on the cash basis pick it up and then do the four-year spread and pay tax on the receivables uh that doesn't seem to work too well i mean it's possible you could have gone that route but since you know the IRS won't give you the ruling, uh, seems like you wouldn't ask for it. You just go that route if you're going to really want to use that firm. And otherwise, you just say, forget it. Okay. I think a more likely plausible explanation, though clearly it could be many other things, is if a prospective buyer is doing due diligence and uncovers the problem. Well, a buyer doesn't like to take on contingent liabilities, doesn't want to risk being a successor, you know, where, where you, you took this, you know, and these liabilities were out there and you knew or should have known about them. And so we're going to come after the assets that you took that shouldn't have been there. So they may very well be concerned about that and buyers tend to be concerned. And a buyer won't really care about how unlikely it is that the IRS would assert, would assert the position. If I'm a large company buying a small company, I generally have much better bargaining power. 
and I really don't want to take on risks I don't need to take on. So at the end of the day, discover this, I might say, sorry, you got to get this fixed. Now, again, seems like you could have proposed fixing it by, you know, we'll record the receivables this year, we'll make the change going forward. You could have got an IRS letter ruling blessing that transaction. But that's not really what they did, at least right now. This is what we've got. So why would we want a negative ruling in that case? It may very well be that we're looking at somebody's going to have to write the check. And it may be that, you know, the company taking over, the buyer, wants this thing fixed and, you know, and to bolster their position. You know, so they're saying, we're not going to do it. And it may be that the company that is being, that was to be acquired or is being acquired, would look at recovering the costs of this from the advisors who, in their view, now fouled up. And that could be the new successor advisors, too, because here's the problem. If you go along with this uh, and, you know, you're aware of it or you should have been aware of it, then you've essentially blessed it. Like it or not, you, you said, well, keep your head in the sand. Nobody's found anything yet. Uh, that's great unless it doesn't work. And since you advised them it was fine to put their heads in the sand and now they're writing these big checks out for taxes, then they might want to pursue that third party. And it could very well be that an insurance carrier for that party is first attempting, say, well, you first got to attempt to get the relief done by going to the IRS and asking for late relief to get us out of this. And we want to have that denied as proof the IRS won't offer the relief. But in any event, it does show why it's important to follow these rules, even in areas where you might say, well, I come on, I'm a practical person. As a practical matter, the IRS never worries about this. That's true. As a practical matter, they really don't in this case. But the real question you got to ask yourself is, but why does this ruling exist? Why did somebody ask for it? And why did they absolutely insist that it come out and say the IRS denies the request? And that tells you that your risk might not really be the IRS. And so maybe you need to broaden your view about what the risk might be when you run across a situation where the taxpayer isn't following the rules or where you're tempted to just do a practical, pragmatic solution rather than the one you know should be followed. And that's kind of where you end up in this case. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 13th, 2022. Here in Phoenix, we're got to 112 at least today, and there's still time left in the afternoon, so we may get higher than that, but I already saw, already saw a note that we tied the record of 112, so it's toasty here now, uh, getting that way. Uh, I do have a little bit of travel this week, so I'll be at the New Jersey Society of CPAs uh, annual convention. I'll be out there. I'm a member there, a member of a couple of other societies. Uh, so I'll be at their convention th this year, being there with convention-type things going on. Uh, it's, and by the way, it's much cooler in Atlantic City than Phoenix right now. So I know it's more humid, but it's 76. It's 76 versus 112. 76 with humidity still is nicer than 112 with no humidity. Just works that way. Consistently, I've found uh, so we'll live with what we got there. Uh, I will be, uh, hopefully, you know, recording everything next week, talking about the updates of anything that happens this week in taxes. We hope something happens this week because I'd like to have something to talk about. The real developments this year have been more in state law. A lot of states are putting in pass-through entity taxes that are getting more creative. So we're seeing a lot of state activity, like Colorado's retroactive pass-through entity tax, uh, that's going to allow you to go back, attempt to go back to 2018, pay the taxes all the way back to them at the end, that year at the entity level, and then get a refund on this year's return, but then deduct the entire amount on this year's federal return. So that's an interesting concept. Uh, things like that are happening. So the state's been really interesting. But the feds have been very quiet this year and just kind of depends if we ever get a tax law. And probably we're not going to get one before the summer recess. Uh, because if you're not aware, the Senate is tied up uh, dealing with most likely a vote on the uh, 
on a compromised gun gun bill on red flag laws, things like that. If you hadn't heard uh, here, I'm recording this on Sunday and it was just announced that they have a apparently a an agreement of sort in the Senate that appears to have 10 Republicans that are part of the group that is going, pushing the compromise. If that's true and all Democrats were to vote for it, that would be enough to get it out of the Senate. Although it will take a while because there will be those opposed to it who are going to at least slow it down. So the catch with all that is even if Congress was currently trying to pass a tax bill, which they're not moving very fast to do anyway, it's likely it's not going to be done until after that. When they come back from the 4th, they have very little time before they go on August recess. And after August recess, we're seriously in election time. So the odds we see a major federal issue come out here soon, not great. Uh, we might see more happen after the election. It may become clear that uh, the Democrats will no longer have full control of the White House, Senate, and House. That may make them more more apt to push regulatory agendas. That's what's happened traditionally for administrations that have lost one or more houses of Congress is they tend to get uh, more pushy on the regulatory side. We've seen basically we see it every time this happens, but there's no point in doing that right now until you know for sure you're not going to control the Congress because it's easier to do things if you can get legislature legislation through. So we're in this kind of pause mode. Uh, before we know for sure how things go forward. So I don't expect a lot. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollersofcurrentfilltaxdevelopments.com. You can also contact me on the Connect boards. I on the Connect boards for Connecticut, or not Connecticut, Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and also check in if anybody posts on the Idaho discussion board. So I take a look there. And so if you have any questions, you can ask there and go with it. Otherwise, I'll see you back here next week as we'll talk about whatever goes on in the coming week in the area of current federal tax developments.